Hello and welcome to Talking Indonesia. I'm your host, Gemma Purdy from Monash University. Today we're talking about West Papua as an issue impacting on Indonesia's bilateral relationships with Australia and more broadly in the region. The sensitivities around this issue for Indonesia's relations in the region and with Australia in particular have a long history and very recently have continued to have an impact. The visit of Joko Widodo to Australia last month in his first official visit followed a difficult few months for the relationship in which materials related to West Papua and the Panchasila were discovered at an Australian military training facility and a trespasser unveiled the Free West Papua flag at the Indonesian consulate in Melbourne. The meeting between the two national leaders, Joko Widodo and Malcolm Turnbull, was considered a great success. But each was very careful to reassert their commitment to the Lombok Treaty of 2006 and the territorial integrity and sovereignty of the other nation. Why does this issue remain so sensitive in the bilateral relationship? And what are the responses internationally to claims for a free Papua? To talk over these issues today, I'm joined by Richard Chevelle from the University of Melbourne. Welcome, Richard, and thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Emma. Pleasure. So I wondered if you could start by giving us as brief background as possible on the history of this issue in the relationship and why we've got to a position today where it continues to be a highly sensitive issue. It, 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 you know, it remains highly sensitive. And I think what was remarkable in the joint communique between Malcolm Turnbull and President Jokowi is that I don't think the word Papua was actually mentioned, uh, but it was clearly understood by everybody who read it uh, that that was what was meant. Uh, Malcolm Turnbull did specifically refer to the Lombok Treaty of uh, the end of uh, signed at the end of 2006, and that was negotiated in a sense to to resolve the tensions in the bilateral relationship, which had been generated earlier that year by Australia. Uh, giving refugee status to 43 asylum seekers who landed on Cape York in January of that that year. And it was the first occasion in the history of the diplomatic relationship that an Indonesian ambassador was withdrawn from Canberra. And if we read the text of the Lombok Treaty, uh, the word Papua is also not mentioned. It has a, a curious and paradoxical way that it is an issue of sensitivity, but it is in a sense so sensitive that the name of the territory itself is only rarely mentioned. That is the diplomatic impasse which we've got to, and it, it is in a sense a way to silence the Australian government to effectively saying anything in public, as opposed as opposed to you know, behind doors in, 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 in any diplomatic exchanges where I would assume matters relating to Papua in fact are often discussed, but not in, in, not in public. Certainly no Australian minister, prime minister that I can recall uh, has offered any criticism of Indonesian policies in Papua uh, since the end of the Suharto regime. So take us back to the beginning, because Australia had quite different views on Papua and its future. 
at decolonization, right? Yes, ab- absolutely. Now, it has a, has, a, has a long history, and without wanting to go into the, the detail of it, I think it's useful to start off by you know, reflecting that the, the two issues which have overshadowed the bilateral relationship are both territorial ones of West New Guinea as it was then then known, which in a sense overshadowed the bilateral relationship from 1950 to 1962, and then former Portuguese East Timor from 1975 to 1998. Both those territories happened to be at the the eastern end of the archipelago in, in close geographic proximity to Australia. And in the case of West New Guinea, it was the Australian government of the the time, the Menzies government, uh, decided in 1950 that West New Guinea was was of great strategic importance to Australia's security. It asserted that it had a right to be consulted in any negotiations of, uh, of a final settlement between the Dutch and the Indonesians, which were supposed to to, to occur um, in the course of 1950, so in the, in the year after the settlement and the Roundtable Conference, in which um, the status quo, the administrative status quo in then Dutch New Guinea, West New Guinea, uh, was maintained with the Dutch in control of, of the administration. And Australia maintained that support for continuing Dutch uh, administration until the beginning of uh, 1962. Mm-hmm. And in what was the basis for that? It, the ba- the basis for that was essentially an ethnic argument, that they accepted the, the, the Dutch proposition that Papua was ethnically, culturally distinct from the, the, the rest of Indonesia. But I, I think it was a, essentially a policy which was designed to keep Indonesia out of Papua. Indonesia in in the UN had always run a classical anti-colonial decolonisation. This is is part of Indonesia. It should be part of... uh, It's the Netherlands, East Indies. Southern Kamarake. Full stop. You've got to remember that until 1975, Australia administered the eastern part of the island uh, of New Guinea and it didn't want um, a land boundary with, uh, with Indonesia. Do you think that that, that point that the Menzies government at the time could foresee that potentially this Papua province would become its own state? The first time that Australia talked about self-determination in connection with both parts of New Guinea uh, was during negotiation the final settlement of a, of a, a 1957 agreement for administrative cooperation between the two colonial powers, so the Dutch in the west and Australia in the, uh, in the east. And that, that agreement foreshadowed, but no more than foreshadowed, the possibility that both parts of the island could become uh, part of a, a of a united political entity, no less a figure than Sir John Kerr uh, was an was an active promoter and advocate of what was then called a, a Melanesian federation, including uh, both parts of New Guinea. So, in the early to mid nineteen fifties, Australia believed its interests were best served by keeping the Netherlands in West New Guinea. 
But when did this position begin to shift and why? Certainly after the failure of the American-supported regional rebellions of PNAD Pamesta, Sumatra and Sulawesi, you know, up until the failure of those outer island rebellions, the Americans and the, and the British essentially indulged both the Dutch and the Australian position. After the failure of those rebellions, the whole Cold War dynamics changed. The Americans had no choice to do some sort of deal, to work with Sakano and Nasutia. Within that, those Cold War dynamics, the Dutch position in New Guinea, supported by Australia, didn't make a great deal of sense. And Sakano and Sabandrio used that leverage very successfully, ultimately to persuade Kennedy to push the Dutch into negotiation. And so Australia too made this change in their policy. You know, they had come to the realisation that um, having close and cooperative relations with Indonesia was more important than having the Dutch in, in, in New Guinea. But there was a sort of smoke and mirrors clause that, that we weren't going to tell anybody this. You know, we still supported the Dutch. We now had the language of self-determination, which we supported and, and uh, from 1960-61 onwards, mm. the, the Dutch were promising independence. You know, they, they were talking about a, a process of decolonisation separate from Indonesia uh, by 1970. And in the course of that, the uh, New Guinea Council, New Guinea-Rad, was established an elected body. When uh, was that? Partly of that setting up that uh, representative body was part of a process of creation of a political elite. And clearly with the agenda of that group of people seeing themselves as part of an independent Papua, which was focused on the Pacific, uh, and not Southeast Asia and Indonesia. In, you know, when we think about the socialisation and education of political elites in Indonesia was that Dutch education system was based in Java. Elites from all over the place went for higher education in Java. This was where they got to know each other. This was where they started to think of themselves as being Indonesians. That first generation of Papuans yeah. didn't go to Java. They were educated in Papua. Some of them were, you know, had some educational experience in PNG, elsewhere in the in the, in the Pacific, a few of them went to Holland. Mm-hmm. So this was a period of significant shifting in Australia's policy position from backing the Netherlands' presence to, as you called it, a game of smoke and mirrors, whereby in the longer term, Australia now saw its interests better served by siding with Indonesia. But can I ask you about popular opinion on this issue? What did Australians at large think about it? The clear distinction to the situation for most of the Indonesian occupation of East Timor, Australian public support, as best we can gauge it through, you know, through the dynamics of parliamentary politics, uh, through public opinion surveys, was supportive of keeping the Indonesians out. And it wasn't phrased in those terms. Yeah. Uh, but that, that, was, that was... So, so it wasn't like Timor, where you had internal domestic criticism from, you know, across a wide spectrum. 
And again, would this have been driven by strategic and security concerns? Oh, yes, it was the memories of the war. Yeah, New Guinea, New Guinea was the last bastion in the sense that was what Second World War taught us. Uh, you, you think of that that you know, the large numbers of ex-servicemen who were in Parliament on both sides oh, yeah. at that time, in, you know, including people all the way up well in the cabinet, and it was bipartisan. But how was this policy position turned around? How did the Cabinet, led by the Minister for External Affairs, Barwick, convince the Parliament to change its position? Barwick not only clearly recognised how um, Kennedy's policies had changed, he also had come to the view that uh, an independent West Papua was not viable. Uh, it would it would be the, the focus of intense Indonesian amnesty. Indonesia would not uh, accept that uh, that outcome. Going back to the earlier decision that relations with Indonesia was a crucial thing, Bawik developed that into an argument that the Dutch plan to create an independent West Papua, either directly or by the UN. Uh, was not in Australia's interest. Yeah, this was, in a sense, in direct contradiction, if you like, to what had been agreed with by the Dutch, with the Dutch in 1957. In quite a short space of time. And, you know, this was long before Australia started thinking about decolonising PNG. That, to my mind, is the... Yeah, the crucial decision, and I would argue with the exception of 1999, you know, the Howard's intervention in East Timor, that strategy has remained. It was not in our interest to cultivate small, unviable, unstable uh, near neighbours. It has remained the same. You know, in all my exchanges with Indonesian academics, diplomats, officials, at various levels, I don't think I've ever come across anyone who understands that. I've recently been going through the diplomatic traffic, you know, diplomatic cables, particularly between you know, Jakarta, Canberra and the UN, and the line-up to the um, UN discussion about the act of free choice, how it was conducted and, and so on. Mm-hmm. There is not one expression of concern by an Australian official policymaker yeah. uh, that the Papuans may not have had their right of self-determination res- respectably implemented. Not one. No, I would argue that that policy, that strategic framework, has essentially been sustained. So you know, Malcolm Turnbull's reiteration for however many times Australian Prime Ministers and Foreign Ministers since Sahato have said exactly that is an irony. But it, 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 it is an irony that is a very effective means of silencing public Australian government criticism of Indonesian policies in Papua. But why should Australia take such an interest? To my mind, Australia has a greater interest than any of other Indonesia's neighbours for some sort of peaceful resolution of the Papua conflict. Yeah after the resolution in, in Aceh, after the separation of East Timor, it is the last of the, the regional conflicts. Can we turn to Papua itself now? 
What can we say about the Papua question since the fall of Suharto until now? Are we any closer to a resolution? If we look at look at the Indonesian policies that, that, that have been uh, developed and implemented from Habibi through to Jokowi, you can you can see the sort of a vacillation between the accommodative under Habibi and and Abdurrahman and Wahid through Megawati was clearly more oppressive and, and SPY sort of vacillated in between very very rarely being accommodative but mainly relying on, on you know, military means uh, to sustain control. None of them have worked. You know, the, the special autonomy law of 2001 was designed by its, or supported by sections of the Jakarta government as a means to moderate support for independence. Uh, and while it's difficult to find an empirical basis to say support was more or less now than then, uh, I think in, in my view there has been no significant moderation. Right, so uh, no decline no, no, in the level no, of support no, for independence. Yeah, so, so in, in, if, if, you, if you accept that one of the objectives of the special autonomy law was to accommodate Papuan interests more than 15 years more than 15 years later in terms of that objective from Jakarta's perspective it's failed as all the others happen and at the same time there's been no point in time since Sahata or really since 1963 that Indonesian control of the provinces uh, has been threatened. But, in a sense, the dominant means, the reliance on large numbers of security forces, has meant that the, the means with which Indonesia has con- sought to maintain its control over West Papua has been one of the factors which has fueled the desire for independence. So in, 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 that, in those terms, it is counterproductive. And also, mm-hmm. what you were saying is that there is no threat of international intervention. Clearly, Indonesia is very sensitive to the um, lobbying that Papuans have been engaging in the Melanesian Spearhead Group, Pacific Islands Forum, um, and more broadly in the, in the, in the Pacific. This is a We're, quite recent thing, or has that know, been, been long? It's, it's certainly been... From it really dates from ninety nine two thousand, but it's, it's clearly been most effective from the Papuan point of view um, in the last several years. Report in the last couple of days has been a, uh, a meeting in Geneva of the UN Human Rights Council, right. of which Vanuatu, in the name of uh, Vanuatu, and I think six other uh, Pacific Island states. I have urged the United Nations to to intervene on human rights grounds. And if we read the State Department's annual human rights report on Indonesia... The U.S. State Department? The U.S. State Department. The last one sort of issued nearly a year ago, so covering 2015, uh, when I did a very crude calculation, Papua got 49 mentions, uh, Aceh got 24, all of Aceh's mentions were on human rights issues relating to Sharia. 
most of Papua's were in relationship to the behaviour and conflicts with the, with the Indonesian security forces, political prisoners, impunity, you know, all, all the issues that we're familiar with. So you know, one would imagine that the US State Department is not an unsympathetic observer in terms of Indonesian interest, in terms of US relations with, with Indonesia. This most recent report is is consistent with the last three or four years uh, before it. And, this, and, and, is, and this is since Jokowi became president yes, yes. and campaigned on very, very hard on we're going yes. to make life better for people in Papua. Yes. Well, you know, when Jokowi, I think from memory, visited Papua during the, the presidential campaign, he's made several visits as, as president. On his first visit, he, uh, he released, I think, five of the 40-odd political prisoners. Um, only one of those remaining prisoners, Philip Karma, has been released subsequently, to my knowledge. And Philip, I think Philip Karma more or less had to be shoved out the door. <laughs> Why is that? Was he didn't want to accept an, an amnesty because that was admission of guilt. You know, he, he didn't believe raising the flag was um, was an offence. But so there's still 30-plus political prisoners. Yes, yes. The, you know, and, and the charges are? The t- charges are treason, uh, raising the flag. You know, some of them more serious. And, uh, at the UN uh, last year, the Indonesians had a right of reply to a statement made by, uh, the, I think, the Prime Minister of the Solomon Islands and other Melanesian countries accusing Indonesia of human rights violations in Papua. In the right of reply, they mentioned, in fact, they called these people terrorists. Are some of these, what we're terming political prisoners, you know, have they also committed criminal acts? Well, in, in terms of Indonesian law, they have. With arms involved? No, 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 no. You know, people like Philip Karma with absolutely no arms. And, and most, most of the other ones who are in there for, for, for flag raising. Is there any aspect of coordination between what is happening on the ground in Papua uh, with the pro-independence uh, groups and the international lobby that we've just been describing? You know, you look at the large numbers of demonstrators who have been picked up over the last couple of years as the Akambe Bay has been organising demonstrations in, in support of the, um, of the lobbying in, in Melanesia, uh, run up to the What's UN. What's the Akambe Bay? What's... Uh, the National Committee for West Papua. You know, I think the coordination between the international lobby with being able to put lots of people on the streets in Jayapur and, and, and elsewhere has been an important part of the success of the, the, the lobbying because it, it's allowed the Papuan activists to, to say, the Indonesians have just showed us. There's a you know, peaceful demonstration in Jayapur, how many people get, get picked up. This is, in a sense, an, an example of what I was arguing earlier, that the, the means used to control are, in important respect, counterproductive. Not only do they continue the alienation process within Papua, but they send exactly the wrong message to the international community. So Jokowi has not introduced any new approaches that have had any impact. There's been an economic investment. Yes, there's been an economic investment, but I think the, the emphasis on economic development is really a 
an element of continuity from uh, SBY, from Cecilia yeah, Bambaugh. Yeah, from Gusto. Yeah. as well. But I think Gusto was different in the sense that he acknowledged there was a political dimension to the problem. Whereas SBY and Jokowi we don't. I think that the underlying assumption of both the SBY and Jokowi approach that you know, problems are essentially of material welfare, of human development, index factors, you know, education, health, And cetera. have they improved? In, in some urban areas, yes. But you know, in relative to the country as a whole, they are the lowest indicators in the country and remain so. Would it be your argument that another counterproductive mm. measure has been limiting access yes. for media to go to Papua. Yes, I think that is part of the problem. They don't see that it's counterproductive? I suspect not. I think the anxieties about what's going on in Papua are so great that keeping people more out than in is preferable. So a, your starting point a, is a position of complete and utter paranoia and suspicion yes. and anxiety, and then you make your policies... Yes. That, that, that regrettably is it. And, you know, all, you know, to go back to the beginning of our discussion of Indonesian anxieties about, about Papuan activists in Australia you know, raising flags in the, in the consulate, appearing at the, at the UN and, and so on, these are symptoms. They are, in a sense, you know, they, they tell us where the problem is, but don't tell us very much about the problem. Uh, and the, the problem is governance. That's a very complex problem, but you know, going back to your issue of you know, access, be it journalist access, to academics access, both Indonesian and, and foreigners, that without those alternate channels of information, Indonesian policymakers themselves often don't know what's going on. And like, Indonesians at large. Indonesians at large. I mean, yes. you only need to reference East Timor and to think about how little Indonesians at large understood but of course, today with social media, the internet, the situation is different, isn't it? So that with Papua, unlike Timor, it's not entirely a situation of being closed off. Yes, no, I, I think that, that that is a yet another dilemma. If you're not there and you're not there for sufficiently long periods yeah. of time, how do you interpret the stuff? It's not that you're not getting information of demonstrations, of people being detained... Pilgata elections taking place, all these things, you know, you can, you can get access to an enormous amount of information, but you don't have the ability that you only get for being on the ground for substantial periods of time to be able to interpret it. But, you know, clearly government control and government intention to control is sufficient to stop any more complex understanding of what's going on. Can you see pressure from the international community, the MSG in particular, as having any impact on Indonesia's position? You know, what happened at the UN General Assembly last year and what's seemingly happened in, in Geneva in the last couple of days is that irrespective of you know, Indonesian diplomacy working effectively to stop the Melanesian spearhead group as a regional entity. It hasn't stopped some members of the MSG and other Pacific Island states Tuvalu, from yeah, doing just that. The belief, however realistic, of international activities, international discussions, even you know, getting the flag flying at the consulate in Melbourne, 
it's not effective yeah. in any real politics sense, but it, it is simply making the point that the issue is, is unresolved. Yeah. And in a way, Indonesian responses to the effect that you know, we simply don't want to talk about it, there's no problem, makes it more difficult for any progress to be made in, in the direction of some sort of resolution. I think that that is the that's the sort of the impasse uh, we, we've got to. To return to where we started, that is the sensitivities within the Australia-Indonesia bilateral relationship around West Papua. Do you think that public support for West Papuan independence in Australia could ever reach a point where it might influence Australian policy? Clearly, the flag, you know, raising the flag on the, on the consulate the other day, yes. was, was provocative. It was all those things, but it also had no influence in changing Australian policy. Broader public sympathy, support for, for Papua is, is not comparable in any way to what was the case in East Timor, you know, for all sorts of different historical reasons. But that's different in Melanesia. You, you've got, you know, certainly not all the governments, some of the governments who are willing to use their status as nation-states to support that cause. It's not going to get Indonesia to change its mind. In some ways, it may make Indonesian change more difficult. I think you can understand from a Papuan activist, pro-independence activist point of view, that you may not have great confidence going to lead anywhere, but it's a great deal better than waiting for the Indonesian government to change its mind. It, it, it has the enormous benefit of pressing those sensitive buttons. Which Australia is, is committed, you know, never intentionally pressing. But you think about it in a strategic considerations in our immediate neighbourhood. You read the last defence white paper, all saying both Indonesia and Papua New Guinea key bilateral relationships. Yeah. Papua New Guinea itself has not inconsiderable government problems. The interactions between the the issues of instability, of poor governance on both sides of the border have a capacity to interact with each other, be exacerbated by each other. So I think in, in, in that sense, Australia has a national interest in encouraging policies which have some hope of resolution. So what do you see as Jokowi's major challenge then in, in attempting to resolve West Papua? Now, I think part of Jokowi's difficulties has been that I don't think, you know, in his perhaps naive enthusiasm for helping Papua, that he understood the nature of the vested interests within the government and military and intelligence systems in support of the status quo. Uh, and that's going to be enormously difficult to turn around. Uh, will any international pressure, even of unimportant states within the international system, promote that or hinder it? That's the, the difficult issue to, to think through. I think you've got to start off from the, the recognition that the vested interest within the government system, really? status quo, is deeply embedded. That was Richard Chevalle an historian and honorary fellow at the Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. Richard is author of many publications, but for those relevant to this topic today, you might be interested in his essay for the Nautilus Institute and more recently 
a chapter in the book titled Linking People, Connections and Encounters Between Australians and Indonesians. Richard's chapter is titled Grandstanding on Papua, where people-to-people -people engagement is not encouraged. Talking Indonesia will return on the 30th of March, hosted by my co-host Dirk Thompson. Remember, you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, or subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode, or find us via your favourite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Thanks for joining us.